0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will visit that Ohio train derailment site one day after Donald Trump. The lead starts right now. Big names descend on a small town, East Palestine, Ohio, the scene of that toxic train wreck. The train's operator, Norfolk Southern, vows to help, but critics note how much the company is giving victims versus company investors for stock buybacks. Plus, after the speeches and fanfare, Ukraine left with the realities of war.
2: Do you have any idea how many bodies you have taken back to their hometowns at this stage?
1: CNN's Clarissa Ward is on the front lines for us with the somber work of returning bodies of fallen Ukrainian soldiers to their families as Russia's brutal invasion nears one year. And a coast-to-coast winter storm, ice and snow, and conditions not seen in some spots in 30 years. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in East Palestine, Ohio where the fallout from that toxic train wreck almost three weeks ago continues to get messier by the hour. And I don't just mean the cleanup, which is underway right now and involves testing water, air and soil for dangerous chemicals. The Biden administration is now promising to make Norfolk Southern, the train operator, pay for every cent of the cleanup process and possibly even more. But this small town near the Ohio, Pennsylvania border has also become a focal point of the political universe. Today, former President Donald Trump visited East Palestine, blasting the Biden administration for what he is calling a lack of response to the crisis. This comes just after the city's mayor on Monday attacked President Biden for visiting Ukraine, but not the site of
3: the derailment. And that was the biggest slap in the face. That tells you right now he doesn't care about us. So Agreed. Uh, he can send every agency he wants to, but... Uh, I found that out this morning in one of the briefings that he was in the Ukraine giving millions of dollars away to people over there, not to us. And I'm furious.
1: There are still, as of now, no publicly released plans for President Biden to travel to Ohio. But the administration is planning on sending Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to the site tomorrow. That's just as the National Transportation Safety Board gets set to release its report into what went wrong, what caused the train full of dangerous chemicals to derail. The train company then intentionally released those chemicals, of course, to avoid a deadly explosion. Tonight, I will be joined by East Palestine residents in the CNN Town Hall, and they will get the chance to ask questions directly to their state's governor, Mike DeWine, to the head of the EPA, Michael Regan, and to the CEO of Norfolk Southern. But for now, CNN's Miguel Marquez starts off our coverage from East Palestine, where the grueling cleanup is long from finished.
3: Massive effort underway to clean up creeks and water flowing in and around East Palestine, Ohio.
4: It is decimating our businesses.
3: It's dirty, difficult, and slow going work. For those living here, building trust that the water and air is safe, as slow going as the cleanup itself.
4: It took, I
5: think, Norfolk Southern three days, four days for us to get a partial list. Vinyl chloride. Uh, Butyl acrylate and benzene residue and combustible liquids. What the hell are combustible liquids? You know, it could be anything.
3: The makings of this disaster appears to have started somewhere between Alliance, Ohio and the derailment in East Palestine. Surveillance video of the train in Alliance shows no signs of sparks coming from its wheels. There is a detector in Sebring, Ohio that would indicate overheat, a so-called hot box detector. It's unclear if it detected any overheat, but in Salem, Ohio, just 13 miles further along, surveillance video clearly shows sparks and bright lights coming from under a rail car at about the halfway point of the train. There is another hot box detector just down the track from where the surveillance video was taken, but it's not clear if it detected an overheat either. If it did, both the conductor and dispatcher would have been alerted to a heating issue. The NTSB said shortly before the derailment, a wayside defect detector alerted the crew to a mechanical issue. CNN estimates, based on the timestamps of the surveillance videos and distances between towns, the train would have been traveling an average of 49 miles per hour between Alliance and Salem, Ohio then slowed to an average of 29 miles per hour between Salem and East Palestine. Still not clear why it slowed. The derailment occurred around 8.55 p.m. shortly after the train passed Market Street in downtown East Palestine. The EPA now ordering Norfolk Southern to pay for and clean up the entire disaster zone.
6: They have to put together a work plan that's going to be very prescriptive in terms of all of the cleanup how they will do it and the, the radius of that cleanup. They also have to explain to us um, you know, how they'll pay for it.
3: All of this as former President Trump visits East Palestine, an area of Ohio where he still enjoys enormous support. So I want to give you a sense of just how difficult it is to clean this, this up. This is one location. This is in the center of East Palestine. This is a creek that is contaminated. You can see those buoys that they have in there. Those are sort of filters. They, they pump water back into it to try to stir it up so that those filters can then absorb uh, any sort of toxins that are in the water. Uh, former President Trump was in a McDonald's earlier. He was asked about his administration rolling back Uh, train safety laws, and he said, it's just not true. This has become not only a disaster on the ground, but politically as well. Jake?
1: All right, Miguel Marquez in East Palestine, Ohio, for us. Thanks so much. The derailment has also opened new questions about whether the rail industry is lobbying too hard against safety regulations. CNN's Pete Muntean reports that the Biden administration is scrambling to prevent a repeat.
7: Disaster in East Palestine was predictable and preventable, say rail safety advocates who want sweeping change to an industry they call off-track.
8: The regulatory process is completely broken.
7: Sarah Feinberg headed federal railroad oversight under the Obama administration. She says now is the time for shorter trains, more crew members on board, and better braking systems. Proposed rules advocates say were rolled back by the Trump administration or killed by lawmakers after lobbying by railroad companies.
8: When they are able to push back on even common sense safety regulations because it's going to improve their bottom line, Uh, This is the kind of thing that we end up with.
7: It is the latest plea to fix failures in Ohio by addressing them in Washington. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg insists his inaugural visit to East Palestine on Thursday will not be about politics, but rather putting pressure on railroads to change.
9: I've had it. I mean, uh, we have had situation after situation where even modest reasonable reform gets just a full court press.
7: In a Sunday letter, Buttigieg called on Norfolk Southern CEO to take action on safety reforms now, not later. Buttigieg tells CNN that safety related fines must be upped, right now capped at about $225,000.
9: For a company the size of Norfolk Southern or any of the major freight railroads, a multi-billion dollar companies that are wildly profitable, it's just not at a level that's going to get their attention.
7: Norfolk Southern posted record profits last year, approaching $5 billion. According to Open Secrets, the railroad spent $1.8 million on lobbying, armed with three dozen lobbyists. The top lobby for the railroad industry insists that safety is a top priority. But in an interview on CNBC, Norfolk Southern CEO evaded a question about its lobbying efforts.
10: I'm looking forward to having discussions with our regulators and with elected officials on how we can make Norfolk Southern a safer railroad. It's important to keep the pressure because this isn't a one-time thing. This is going to happen again. And any class one railroad is vulnerable. This could happen anywhere if they don't change their operating practices. The Transportation Secretary's
7: visit to East Palestine is happening on the same day that the NTSB is releasing its first investigative findings. Investigators will not be releasing a cause just yet. Buttigieg says, though, that the report is not needed to know that rails would be safer if the industry just did not fight so hard against proposed rules and legislation. Jake?
1: All right, Pete Muntean, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Mary Schiavo, the former inspector general, For the Department of Transportation, Mary, thanks for joining us. So the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, is set to release its preliminary report on the derailment tomorrow morning. What specifically are you going to be looking for?
8: Well, the NTSB will release in a preliminary report the facts as they know them so far. But those facts could include some some very important things. For example, all of the rail tracks have what's called defect detectors. And as you mentioned earlier in the, the show, that looks for hot boxes or overheating axles and wheels. Why that did not alert the train in time for it to stop will be among the things that probably they know in the facts. Either the hot boxes and the reporting system work and the engineer knew it because there are recorded devices, of course, on the trains, or they didn't. And then also they will find out, uh, because it will be a factual report, uh, exactly if this train and the makeup of this train was subject to any additional safety requirements. It appears not, uh, with three uh, train crew on it. Um, it was over two, which is the, uh, the number people want, and also that it did not have the materials on it that would have required the uh, pneum- the electronic pneumatic braking system. In other words, the automatic braking system that so many people are talking about. That will all be in the report. Very helpful news.
1: Republican Senators J.D. Vance of Ohio and Marco Rubio of Florida sent a letter to Secretary Buttigieg, and part of it says, quote, It is not unreasonable to ask whether a crew of two rail workers plus one trainee is able to effectively monitor 150 cars. 150 cars, some of them carrying hazardous materials, and only three crew? How long has this been allowed?
8: Uh, Well, actually, for quite some time. There's been lots of efforts to try to increase that. But Back in the '80s is when the 1980s is when the cabooses went away, and the reason they went away, of course, is we had on-track monitoring systems, things to detect, you know, flappers on the tracks to detect, determine if equipment's hanging, the uh, the uh, hot box detectors and other things, and so because of that and the reporting system that's supposed to report this information to the trains. A lot of the eyes-on evaluations have gone away. Also have some of the actual human evaluations where you go out and inspect the trains. Uh, a lot of inspectors are, you know, are just too busy, and a lot of those inspections don't take place. So a lot of the eyes-on functions are gone, replaced by electronics and automatic reporting.
1: And, and have those electronics and electronic reporting sufficiently filled the gaps from uh, the eyes-on?
8: Ah, so this uh, accident is, of course, a pretty good indicator that they have not. So there's a lot of criticism that we have now a lot of electronics that can or may not be used depending upon the law, but the law is full of loopholes. It's a sieve of mishmash of bit different requirements. For example, some of the uh, automated braking would have applied to a train carrying oil, if it was over 130 cars, uh, it wouldn't have applied to this train. And the problem is, is that the federal regulation in transportation, as in many areas, is just a complete mishmash of rules that have been mashed together and with carve-outs by lobbyists, as the Secretary of Transportation mentioned. In transportation, perhaps more than any other industry, they have big contributions and big lobbying teams. And in my years in transportation, I saw it firsthand. If you push hard, you get pushback, and, and, and the pushback's very hard. They have criticisms, they come for your job, they come for your budget. Secretary Buttigieg has his work cut out for him.
1: We should note that the CEO of Norfolk Southern has pledged uh, that the company will spend $6.5 million to help those uh, affected by the derailment. But in a separate plan released Mm -hmm. earlier this year, the same company said that it's planning to spend more than a thousand times that amount, specifically $7.5 billion Mm -hmm. to repurchase its own shares in order to benefit shareholders for Norfolk Southern. That would seem to Mm -hmm. send a message Uh, that rail companies are more focused on profits than they are on safety and the American people in some ways.
8: And that's why you need a very strong Department of Transportation and rail administration, because that is the case in many industries. And, and here, of course, tomorrow's report from the NTSB will highlight what went wrong, but that won't highlight what more you could do, what more can be done. And for those safety improvements, I can tell you exactly how the automatic braking system uh, got put aside, and that is Congress said, oh, no, you have to do the cost-benefit analysis. How much is the value of lives that would be lost if you don't do this versus how much is it going to cost the industry? And that cost-benefit analysis sunk those regulations as it has many others. That's where it often lies in doing this cost-benefit analysis.
1: Be sure to tune in tonight. We're going to have the CEO of Norfolk Mm -hmm. Southern uh, on the show. And and residents of East Palestine will get to ask him questions. Mary Schiavo, thank you so much for your time. And again, that special Mm -hmm. CNN town hall tonight, residents of East Palestine getting to ask questions to the governor of Ohio, to the head of the EPA, to the CEO of Norfolk Southern. That's tonight at 9, only here on CNN. Coming up next, CNN's Clarissa Ward with a man who's doing one of the most difficult yet respected jobs in Ukraine's war, returning fallen soldiers' bodies to their families and breaking news of two new subpoenas in the special counsel probe into Donald Trump. And it's all in the family. And just in, a brand new image of that Chinese spy balloon in the air captured in a selfie. Stay with us. Breaking news. The special counsel investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election has subpoenaed both Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner. That's according to The New York Times. The Times Maggie Haberman broke the story. She joins us now. Maggie, uh, tell us about these subpoenas.
11: Sure, Jake. So as we understand that it is for both uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, it is to testify before a grand jury in connection with the January 6th investigation, which encompasses not just the riot at the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob on uh, January 6th, 2021, but also Trump's efforts to stay in office. This is the latest in a series of Very, very aggressive moves taken by the special counsel, Jack Smith, showing that he does not consider any witness to be off limits. Mike Pence was the other uh, surprising and obviously high level subpoena recently issued.
1: Fascinating. Maggie Haberman, thanks so much with that breaking news. Here to discuss Tom Dupree, former principal deputy attorney, assistant attorney general under president uh, George W. Bush. Uh, Tom, what, what do these subpoenas tell you about how the special counsel's investigation is progressing?
12: Well, they tell us two things, Jake. One is that they tell us that this is a very serious individual, the special counsel. Uh, He's not pulling any punches. He's going right to the top to get the witnesses and the evidence that he needs to investigate this and make his case. The other thing it tells me is that we're probably starting to get close to the end. In other words, typically you would begin with lower ranking witnesses and gradually work your way up the food chain. And needless to say, Jared and Ivanka are pretty close to the top of the food chain here.
1: What what kinds of questions do you think uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith wants to ask Jared and Ivanka?
12: Well, two types of questions. One is the events of January 6th. Uh, We know that Ivanka was in touch with her father uh, pretty much throughout the day or at least in the afternoon. We know that Jared had just returned from an international trip and kind of got himself involved in that process, too. So I think he wants to talk about the events of that day. I suspect his mission or his his, uh, interest here is broader than that, though, Jake. I think that he's also going to try to find out if they have any knowledge or involvement in the various other election-related schemes that were going on, the fake elector scheme and things along those lines. So I think it's probably going to be a pretty broad-ranging conversation, if I had to guess.
1: Now, I know there's no... no, uh, um the way that a husband can't be forced to testify against his wife, that does not exist. That kind of privilege does not exist with kids, certainly not with a son-in-law. Um, but they're not just family. They're both White House employees. Uh, might they try to claim executive privilege to avoid a subpoena?
12: Yeah, look, I think you're right that I don't think they can claim any sort of, you know, familial relationship exemption for the reason you mentioned is that they were, you know, White House advisors. Whether or not they'll claim executive privilege is a closer call. Um, I think the first thing they do is find out what former President Trump's thinking there is. Uh, It's possible he would direct them to assert executive privilege. Maybe he'd let them talk. We'll see. I I think that they would have a, a colorable claim. I'm not sure at the end of the day it would hold up in court. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they tried to shut down at least a lot of the special counsel's questions by invoking some sort of privilege.
1: And, and lastly, I just want to ask you, because the, the person, the forewoman from that Fulton County uh, grand jury uh, did some media interviews last night here on CNN and, and elsewhere. Uh, and that seemed, I'm sure to a lot of observers, unusual. But this kind of grand jury is different than what people might be used to, Right.
12: Yeah, I mean, look. This is obviously it's a state grand jury. It's a special grand jury. It's not the federal grand jury that that people might be more familiar with. But I will say this: I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I was a little taken aback, to be perfectly honest. It's extremely unusual. I can't think of another example where you would have the four person come out and kind of say their thinking and and at least walk right up to the line of disclosing the actual recommendations. Uh, My sense is it's not a good look. Uh, I, I don't think that you know it's it's advancing the cause here in terms of her getting out and kind of saying her her views on this. And I'm a little surprised, frankly, that the DA or the judge or other folks haven't tried to, to rein in her media tour just a little bit here.
1: Could it actually undermine any sort of criminal prosecution?
12: It, you know, I I don't know if it would legally, Jake. I mean, at the end of the day, the the jury is going to consider the evidence, and I don't think what the four person said in the media would make it too much of a difference on that front. But what it will do, I think, is give the former president and his defenders the chance to make a case that this is just kind of a, a corrupt process, a political process. Um, you can say, you know, this is the person who's kind of making these these decisions, these recommendations, and it's such a deviation from the normal aura of secrecy that shrouds the grand jury process, I think it might cause a lot of people out there to raise their eyebrows. So it might have an impact in the court of public opinion, but I'm not as sure it will actually have an opinion in the actual trials that will follow.
1: All right, Tom Dupree, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, CNN's Clarissa Ward with one of the hard realities of the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. In our world lead, President Biden is on his way back to Washington, D.C. from Warsaw after meeting with leaders of the nations on the eastern flank of NATO and affirming his unwavering support in Ukraine's fight against Russia.
13: As NATO's eastern flank, you're on the front lines of our collective defense. And you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world.
1: This meeting with the Bucharest Nine followed Biden's first trip inside the war zone in Ukraine, which required highly covert transportation by train in and out of Kiev. But just outside Kiev, another important transport operation is taking place. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, joins us now live from Kiev. And Clarissa, you're following a volunteer group who has a very somber mission.
2: That's right, Jake. You know, there's been a lot of excitement around here the last few days because of President Biden's visit. But now there's a sense that everyone's getting back to the grim reality of dealing with this war, which is grinding on with a terribly high rate of attrition. So many people across this country are volunteering in all different kinds of ways. We met one man who is doing a job that, frankly, few would have the stamina to be able to do, but it means so very much to the families of soldiers who have been killed in action. Take a look. On most days, Alegre Pnoy sets out before dawn. Part of a volunteer group called Bulldozer that transports the remains of Ukraine's fallen soldiers back to their families. At a morgue in the Kyiv suburb of Beryspil, a group of servicemen are waiting to meet the body of Private Alexei Litvinov. It's somber work and the men move quickly. Repnoi hands over the soldiers' personal effects. At the moment, we have 18 bodies, Uh, he tells us. And each family wants to get them as soon as possible. So why do you do this work?
14: Few people people
2: are willing to to do this work for free, he says.
14: Mm. And not everyone
2: has the psyche for it. They are lonely, seemingly endless hours on the road as he crisscrosses the country. Emblazoned across the side of his truck is the number 200, a military term for the transport of dead bodies that dates back to Soviet time. On occasion, processions of people line up on their knees to greet the truck, a mark of respect for the dead. At a morgue in the city of Dnipro, Repnoy stops to pick up more bodies overwhelmed by the number of casualties, the hospital has taken to storing them in a shipping container in the parking lot. As the men work, mourning relatives file past. Ukraine does not release information on how many of its soldiers have been killed in action, but Repnoy says that his daily load has soared in recent weeks as fighting has raged in eastern Ukraine. Do you have any idea how many bodies you have taken back to their hometowns at this stage?
14: In this van, he
2: says, around a thousand. And now we're at a stage in the war where more and more Ukrainian soldiers are being killed. Are you seeing that?
14: At the moment, yes,
2: he tells us. Right now, it's a large amount. 36 hours after Repnoy drops off his body, Private Litvinov is given a proper funeral in Brispil. Killed in the Donbass region on February 11th, his mother Marina can finally say goodbye to her son. How important was it to you to have his body returned so that you could give him this beautiful funeral today? The main thing is to have him at home, not laying somewhere eaten by birds. You understand how awful it is when people just disappear, she says. We cannot change anything, but thank God he is here and I can come to visit him. This is the reason Repnoi does this work. But seeing the family's grief is also incredibly painful. The hardest part is when you drop them off, he says, when there are relatives present, to look them in the eye.
14: It's very hard,
2: he says. There's so much emotion, so many tears. But there's no time for tears tonight. Repnoy still has more bodies to deliver. And across Ukraine, many families are still waiting. Now we spoke, Jake, to the head of Bulldozer, that's this volunteer group, and he told us that yesterday was an absolute record day, the highest number of bodies they had ever been instructed to collect and to try to move around the country to repatriate those remains to their family. A lot of the dead are coming from Bakhmut in the east, and Donbass, where there has been heavy fighting and where there continues to be heavy fighting with no clear end point in sight. And that's why you're seeing Ukrainian officials pushing so hard for heavier weaponry, Jake.
1: Yeah, Clarissa Ward with a powerful piece in Ky- Kyiv, Ukraine, thank you so much. Tomorrow CNN will host a special town hall on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One year later, top Biden administration, national security officials Jake Sullivan and Samantha Power will speak with CNN's Fareed Zakaria. That's tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, I'm going to speak with a Republican lawmaker who who is demanding answers from the U.S. Air Force after the unauthorized release of his military records. Plus, the sky-high selfie that captured this Chinese spy balloon shot down off South Carolina's coast. Stay with us. Just into our world lead, the Pentagon released a new photo of that Chinese spy balloon that was shot down off the South Carolina coast by the U.S. military earlier this, this month. CNN's Oren Lieberman
15: is live for us at the Pentagon. Oren, t- what exactly does this photo show? Jake, a pretty remarkable photo here if you look at it, this is effectively a selfie from inside the cockpit of a U-2 spy plane, and you can see the balloon right there, but below it, that white balloon, some 200 feet in diameter as we've reported, and the payload below it. You can quite clearly see uh, 16 what appear to be solar panels, as well as right in the middle there what appears to be some sort of radar dish or communications dish. That's the payload. That is what the Pentagon is interested in, and that's what the Pentagon recovered in the waters off the coast of South Carolina on February 4th. The picture itself taken one day earlier. So that's as the balloon itself was making its way across the eastern and central United States. So that's where this was taken. The U-2 spy plane, one of the only planes in the U.S. inventory that can get this high to take this picture. The balloon was flying at an altitude of about 60,000 feet. The U 2 itself can get up to 70,000 feet, and especially compared to the fighter jets that shot it down, is relatively slower, making it the perfect way to get this close of a view, Jake.
1: All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon Forest. Thanks so much. House Republicans are demanding answers after the U.S. Air Force admitted that the military records of two Republican lawmakers were improperly released. An internal Air Force audit revealed that the unauthorized access of records from 11 individuals, including Republican Congressman Zach Nunn of Iowa and Don Bacon of Nebraska, who joins me now. Bacon retired from the Air Force in 2014 as a brigadier general and currently serves as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congressman Bacon, it's good to see you. The the person who received your records is reportedly a former research director for a Democratic political group. You say this goes beyond opposition research and is is potentially criminal. Why?
9: Why? Well, first, uh, the Democrat campaign or the Congressional Campaign Committee gave $105,000 to this firm called Due Diligence, Uh, this one individual worked there, and they acquired the records of 11 Air Force veterans, and they used their social security numbers and other personal identifying uh, info. It was deceptive. uh, It was basically identity theft. And so it's it's surely deceptive, probably illegal uh, to pretend you're me. Asking for my records and then getting it, but it was done for uh, opposition research to see if there's any dirt in our, in our records, and it was wrong.
1: Is it against the law to get somebody's social security number and then request their military records?:
9: It's under our understanding from our lawyers it is because you can't use, it's like identi- identity theft. They were using my Social Security number, which they illegally obtained. I didn't give it to them. And requested my records as if I was wanting the, these records. And they did this to 11 different individuals. And in my case, it didn't impact me politically, as far as I can tell, but others had impact. Uh, for example, a race in Indiana was negatively impacted uh, for this, uh, for Jennifer Ruth Green. Yeah, I wanna talk about that
1: one second, but before I do, the Air Force says this was just a mistake made by an employee. Um, but in a, in a letter to you, the head of the personnel office wrote, quote, based on our investigation and internal audit, we determined there was no criminal action or malicious intent by the employee and the records brand. Nevertheless, we held our employee accountable for failing to follow proper administrative, administrative procedures, unquote. Are you satisfied with that response from the air force? I know, I know you think that that what this operative did was shady, potentially legal, potentially illegal, but what about the air force?
9: No, I think the Air Force did right. They came clean. They took responsibility. Uh, they had accountability. They put fixes in place. They were honest. Uh, so I think the Air Force responded appropriately, and I thank the Secretary of the Air Force uh, for that. I think the real culprit, as I, as you mentioned, is the Democratic congressional campaign arm uh, who was doing the funding for this research and, and then using our Social Securities and what I think was illegal, but it was, it was at least inappropriate, according to the Air Force, uh, what they did. And they, they, the Air Force gave all this evidence to the Department of Justice. I hope the Department of Justice looks into it and holds people accountable.
1: Let's talk about that Republican candidate uh, running in Indiana. Her name uh, is Jennifer Ruth Green. She was running for Congress uh, last fall. She had her military records revealed uh, during the midterm uh, campaign, um, which basically forced her to publicly discuss a sexual assault she experienced in in the Air Force. So these improper releases can have consequences beyond just politics.
9: Yes, and I really appreciate you bringing this up or following up on it. She was victimized twice. Uh, She didn't want to live through the sexual assault experience again. It was her private matter. She didn't want to have to deal with it. But the Democrat operatives somewhere along the line released this data. She had to respond to it. I thought it was victim shaming uh, by the by the uh, Democrat headquarters in D.C. I don't know about the her opponent. I can't tell that her opponent was behind this, but clearly, Democrat officials in in Washington D.C. or part of the uh, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, were behind this. And I know f- from talking to her, she felt victimized a second time, and it was in a sense a victim
10: shaming.
1: What do you want from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or from? the third-party group uh, that was apparently behind this that they had hired in the past. We don't know necessarily that what this is was part of what the DCCC had asked them to do, but obviously there are ties. What do you want to hear from both organizations?
9: Well, the Democrat campaign uh, committee or congressional campaign clearly paid for this research to be done. It was $105,000. We know that from their own reports, Uh, but at least the due diligence firm, the Democrat firm that receive this money from the Democrat congressional campaign, they should take responsibility. They should take accountability. Uh, they should say if they did wrong, which they did, and uh, I think they should come clean. And we should also know where did this information go? Uh, obviously, it went into opposition research. Was it sent to the opponents of these 11 Republicans that had this uh, done to them? Was it used against them? So we'd like to know how was this information used, who approved it, Uh, Who knew when and and when did they know it? Uh, Going back to the Watergate days.
1: Yeah. Uh, Retired uh, Air Force Brigadier General and current Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska. Thanks so much for coming on to discuss this. Thank you. I had that dangerous coast to coast winter storm. We're going to go live to Minnesota set to get the most snow seen in three decades. Stay with us. In lead now, a powerful coast-to-coast winter storm is bringing heavy snow, high winds, and ice. Whipping blizzard conditions were seen in Flagstaff, Arizona, and in parts of Utah. Around 70 million people from California to Maine are under winter weather alerts right now, including in the upper Midwest, where the brunt of the storm is expected to hit. The temperature difference from the northern U.S. to the south, more than 100 degrees. CNN's Adrian Broaddus is in Bloomington, Minnesota. Adrian, how, how bad is it where you are right now?
14: Well, Jake, the snow is falling and the wind is starting to pick up. We are in phase two of this storm, and members with the National Weather Service say this storm will pack a punch. Snow totals expected to top at least 20 inches. Let's tell you what we know so far. Earlier this morning, from 7.30 a.m. up until 11.30 a.m., there were more than 100 crashes. Ten of them resulted in injuries, and at least one was serious. That was earlier this morning when experts were saying the snowfall was light to moderate. This snow that you're seeing right now is only going to increase. The wind is going to pick up and we've watched the shift, Jake, throughout the day. Even this area here, it's now all white. When we first started doing our live shots, I could see the pavement. That's not the case. Now we've seen multiple snow plows come through. I can't. I can't see that well anyway without my glasses. But we haven't seen or heard any flights coming in, and that's something we saw earlier. Jake?
1: The Prediction Center is warning, Adrian that this storm could become one of the top three all-time snowfall events for the state of Minnesota, which is a state that knows from snow.
14: Oh yeah, Minnesotans are hardy. They A lot of Minnesotans love snow. Some people are looking forward to this storm. Not the danger that comes with it, but they want to get out on the other side and ski and do all the fun things outside. But yes, this could be one of the top five. So with the help of my producer, Virginia, I've got my trusty measuring tape and we're going to track it. This will be our starting point. Now, this is a little drift. Just to give you an idea, it's a little under two feet here, but keep in mind, That's because snow has blown here. Let's see what happens as those winds continue to pick up, Jake.
1: All right, Adrian us in Bloomington, Minnesota. Thank you so much. Stay warm. Coming up next, the new Pentagon warning to the government of China if China gives weapons to Russia to help Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the U.S. Supreme Court hearing a second case that could determine if social media platforms such as Twitter or Instagram or Facebook are responsible for the content that users post. How the ruling could reshape the internet and the world. Plus, Donald Trump visiting the Ohio town where that train derailed while we wait for investigators to determine. If any of the safety regulations his administration overturned played any role in the toxic disaster. And leading this hour, one year into the invasion of Ukraine, and Russia is being very public about cozying up to China. U.S. officials believe Vladimir Putin is looking to the Chinese government now for military supplies as an end date for Putin's unprovoked war remains nebulous. While China and Russia strengthened their alliance, President Biden today met with leaders of NATO's eastern flank, also known as the Bucharest Nine. Those are the countries in red on your screen right now. Let's bring in CNN's Chief White House Correspondent Phil Manningly in the Polish capital city of Warsaw. And Phil, Biden was pressed on Putin's latest nuclear saber rattling, but he did not seem to want to talk much about it.
10: Yeah, he did eventually weigh in, but it was clear he wanted the focus to be on those eastern flank countries uh, that he met with earlier today, a critical meeting that lasted for more than an hour behind closed doors. But when asked about President Putin's surprise announcement during his hour and 45 minute speech that he would be suspending uh, compliance with the New START nuclear arms treaty, he responded like this
8: Mr. President, any reaction to Putin saying
5: he's pulling out of New START? I don't have time. No
10: time? No. No time. Big mistake. And Jake, that was an assessment that lined up with what we've heard from his advisors over the course of the last 24 hours. Now, notably, the President Putin's announcement came hours before President Biden's own primetime speech. He didn't address this issue during the speech, and just a short while ago, uh, an interview with ABC News' David Muir was released where the president, again, called it a big mistake, but said he was confident they could work things out. And I think that underscores a subtext here. When you talk to U.S. officials, they make clear this is a reversible position. It's not uh, The uh, treaty goes until 2026. There is time to figure this out. But keep in mind, this was the first agreement reached by President Biden and President Putin at the start of his time in office. And it just goes to show that even on issues where they thought they could negotiate, thought they could reach agreements, the relationship is all but imploded at this point.
1: And Phil, the president uh, is set to land back in Washington in just a few hours. What will await him as Republicans continue to splinter on the subject of support for Ukraine?
10: Yeah, there are no shortage of complex issues, difficult uh, decisions that need to be made. And certainly on the home front, Republicans in ensuring that there is still a pathway to get additional assistance, which U.S. officials acknowledge is going to be a reality sometime soon how they actually navigate a new House Republican majority where there is uh, at least a portion of that conference that are almost militantly against new assistance or certainly want strings attached to that new assistance. That is a process that we'll be working through behind the scenes over the course of the coming months. But it's bigger than just the domestic front. Obviously, as the president laid out in his speech, there's an alliance to stick together. There is China that is hanging out there geopolitically. No shortage of issues. And obviously, as you noted, Jake, no clear end game to a conflict that continues now.
1: Phil Mattingly in Warsaw, Poland for us. Thanks so much. Today, China's top diplomat Wang Yi met face-to-face with Russian President Putin at the Kremlin in an unmistakable showcase of the two countries' deepening relationship. That meeting comes just days after U.S. officials told CNN that the Chinese government is contemplating uh, providing Putin with lethal military aid. This afternoon, a Pentagon spokesperson warned there could be, quote, serious consequences if that happened. CNN's Fred Plaikin reports from Moscow where Putin attempted to drum up support among Russians at a military-style rally earlier today.
16: Russian leader Vladimir Putin rallying his nation for a tough battle. At a massive event in Moscow, Putin's message to the crowd, Russian troops in Ukraine are fighting for Russia's survival.
10: There is a battle going on for our historical borders, for our people. It is led by the same courageous fighters who are standing here. They fight heroically, courageously, bravely. We are proud of them. Three cheers in their honor.
16: The concert in Moscow's Luzhniki Stadium on the eve of the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, with Putin himself leading the rallying call. For those attending, patriotism is the main message.
2: I adore Vladimir Vladimirovich. I'm prepared to support him with everything I've got.
17: The whole of Europe and the West is helping Ukraine. So, of course, it's taking a long time but we will demilitarize Europe and U.S. too.
10: (laughs) My understanding is we are fighting for our interests there. Regrettably, it is not us who decide what those interests are.
16: Russian forces have made little progress on the battlefield in recent months, with both Russia and Ukraine sustaining heavy losses. As the U.S. believes Russia might be turning to China for military supplies... Reaffirming his commitment to relations with Beijing in a meeting with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi.
10: Russian Chinese relations are developing just as we planned in previous years. Everything is moving forward, developing, and we are reaching new milestones.
16: China has brushed off the US's concerns that Beijing might be contemplating supplying arms to the Kremlin's war effort, taking a swipe at the Biden administration.
15: We would like to emphasize once again that the comprehensive strategic partnership between Russia and China has never been directed against a third party, and is certainly not subject to interference and provocation by any third party.
16: While Beijing says it wants a political solution, Vladimir Putin is drumming up support for his military operation, trying hard to keep the Russian population motivated for a battle he deems existential. And you know, Jake, Vladimir Putin doubling down on that message once again tonight. He sent out a video message for Russian forces claiming that the Russian troops in Ukraine are fighting against what he calls Nazism in Ukraine. He also promised new and modern weapon for those troops, clearly not the
1: words of someone who appears to be backing down. Jake? All right, Fred Plantkin in Moscow, thanks so much. Let's bring in Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi. He's the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Senator, good to see you. Um, you wrote last week, quote, the United States was the arsenal of democracy during the Second World War. If we fulfill that role again, we will show Xi and Putin that there are very real limits to what their partnership can achieve, unquote. Do you think Biden is on track to fulfilling that role with his recent trip to
18: Europe? Well, let me say, I I, I applaud the president for going to Europe. They were great words. Now they they do need to be followed up with action. And, you know, we've complained um, over the last 12 months about foot dragging. Uh, uh, Appropriations have been made. Uh, We've urged them uh, to give weapons uh, more, quicker, and better. And and, and so I I hope once the president gets back, his order uh, to the Pentagon is... Let's give uh, all the ammunition they need, the long-range missiles, the air support, uh, the things that uh, that Zelensky needs to actually win this spring offensive.
1: So, yes, you've been critical of what you say is the unnecessary slow walking of the aid to Ukraine. Are you having active discussions with other lawmakers uh, about uh, pushing Biden to send Zelensky, for example, the F-16 fighter jets he so desperately
18: wants? Uh, I think we should do that. And, you know, there's always an excuse. Uh, you know, they're used to uh, flying MiGs over there and there will be a training gap. Well, uh, we've had a lot of time for training. And and uh, if there's more training that needs to be done, we need to start it this afternoon and, and make sure that we can get them what they need to win this offensive uh, in the spring. That, one thing I'm, I'm concerned that the American people don't realize is Vladimir Putin has failed miserably in this late winter offensive. Uh, he, he may have gained a meter or two in a, in a small town, but it has not succeeded and is not likely to succeed. What it has done is, um, it is uh, result in a huge, not, uh, not, not just casualty rate, but mortality rate. Yeah. Uh, most of the problems they, they've had have been actually fatalities among these prisoners and these conscripts who are not ready to fight. And uh, no matter what China gives them, they will never be ready to fight a war like this. A source
1: on the Hill tells us that you led a meeting last week with rank-and-file Republicans to try to cement support um, and educate some of them even on, on Ukraine aid and the oversight of those billions of dollars. The source went on to say that you sent members, quote, a whole chart explaining the breakdown of U.S. assistance versus Europe, European assistance, do you think you changed any minds or solidified any support?
18: Well, listen, I, th- I think there is strong support among the Republican conference, I'd, I'd say 90% support, um, for giving Ukraine the the tools it needs to win the war. We're not asking our, our uh, troops to go over there and fight. They're doing the, the dirty work, and we're, we're helping the West provide some uh, equipment uh, I had questions about our share of the burden at our at our uh, Tuesday lunch and also you know, what what the other uh, allies are doing and um, and, and what percentage of, of our GDP we're spending on that so the next day I, uh, I complied and and supplied them with chapter and verse and I think it was very helpful and you know I think the American people uh, I think they want uh, Ukraine to win. They don't want us to get into uh, a long uh, war of attrition where we're making our allies fight with one hand tied behind their backs. And so the, the truth of the matter, Jake, is the president has the authority for 10 times more weaponry than he promised uh, this week in Europe. And yeah. and what we wish he would do is... is is take the congressional authorization and show that we want Ukraine to be in this to win this. And so, and frankly, she uh, is uh, the president. Uh, the communist president of China is watching this. If right. if we're worried about what might happen in the Western Pacific with communist China, we ought to be mindful that they are watching for U.S. and Western resolve in Ukraine.
1: So what do you make of the Pentagon spokesperson's threat this afternoon that there will be consequences if China does provide lethal military aid to Russia in its assault on Ukraine?
18: I don't know what they mean by that, but the consequences should be that we're we're going to give the long-range missiles to Ukraine regardless of what China does. And and we're going to show that that we have the resolve to to follow through on the strong and and uh, welcome words that, that the, the American president uh, delivered in Europe.
1: Republican Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Tomorrow, CNN will host a special town hall, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One year later, top Biden administration national security officials will speak with CNN's Reed Zakaria. That's tomorrow night at 9 Eastern only here on CNN. The Ohio toxic train derailment is getting more political by the day as we wait for key investigation findings about what might have caused the crash. Then one official is calling it, calling it a massacre. The deadly clashes that have the U.S. State Department extremely concerned. Stay with us. And we're back with our national lead. The National Transportation Safety Board is set to release its report tomorrow morning, a preliminary report into the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. This comes as former President Donald Trump visited the town and as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is scheduled to arrive tomorrow. CNN's Jason Carroll is in East Palestine for us and CNN's Kristen Holmes is in D.C. Jason, what's the latest on the ground there today?
6: Well, we do have late word from Ohio's governor who tells us out of an abundance of caution, he says that the, uh, the Ohio EPA will now be independently testing the municipal water. They'll be doing that now once a week, again, out of an abundance of caution. Uh, so far to date, the water samples have come back showing it to be safe. Behind me now, what we've seen around town for the past week or so, sites like this where they're aerating the water to make it cleaner, to make it safer for those here as it feeds into local waterways. In terms of well water, Still much of a question there. We're told now that 74 private wells, samples have been taken from those private wells, still waiting for test results there. In the meantime, they're still suggesting that folks who rely on private well water that has not yet been tested to continue drinking bottled water. Questions about air quality. Again, the samples continue to show that the air quality here in East Palestine is safe to date. They have now tested 560 homes, again that according to the governor's office. But as you say, tomorrow, Pete Buttigieg will be here. He's been criticized, as you know, uh, by many residents here on the ground, saying that he should have given more face time earlier to the residents here. Buttigieg, for his part, has always called for increased uh, safety regulations when it comes to the rail industry. Uh, we should also tell you that even though we've heard continuous reports, about the air quality being safe, about the water quality being safe. The folks here in the ground simply just don't buy it. I was just texting with one just a few minutes ago who told me the following. He said, I don't believe one thing any of them are saying. Not No one has been to our street and asked about our concerns. And these are just some of the things that Pete Buttigieg and others, whether it be the EPA or state officials, have to deal with when they come to East Palestine and speak to the local residents here. Jake.
1: All right, Jason. And, Kristen, Donald Trump has no power to change any rules or regulations or get the functions of government going there for the citizens. So this does seem a bit political, at least. What's the thinking behind his visit?
5: Well, there is enormous amount of political motivation here. And as you just heard from Jason, Donald Trump doesn't have to do the same things that the current administration has to do. He gets to just show up, make remarks, and leave because he doesn't have any of that power. Now, when I talked to aides and advisors, they said there were really two big things in the political sphere that they wanted to accomplish with this trip. And the first was making Donald Trump look presidential. He is, of course, running for president in 2024. And this really looked like it almost exactly mimicked a White House presidential disaster trip. He was flanked by local officials. He visited the disaster site. He met with first responders. He thanked them. He gave remarks. Uh, and then he announced a major donation that he was making towards East Palestine, which included water and cleaning supplies. Now, The other thing that they were hoping to accomplish here was to use this opportunity to contrast Trump to Biden and really double down on Trump's America first agenda. They were painting a picture here of Trump as the person who's coming into Ohio to talk to the people on the ground and largely talking about how this was the opposite of what Biden was doing mainly pointing to his trip to Ukraine earlier this week and his trip in Europe. And it's interesting because one of the things you noted here, Jake, and I want to point this out, is that you said that this becomes more and more political by the day. Trump's trip comes after a number of conservative commentators have lashed out at the Biden administration and indicated time and time again in recent weeks that the outcome might have been different, the aid might have been different if these weren't Republican voters. Uh, So again, this is becoming very toxic and very political on the ground there.
1: All right, Toxic in more than one sense, Kristen Holmes and Jason Carroll. Thanks. Joining us tonight for a live CNN Town Hall with the residents of East Palestine, Ohio, the governor of Ohio, Republican Mike DeWine, will be there, as will the EPA administrator, uh, Democrat Michael Regan. Plus, of course, we're going to have Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw, all of them taking questions from the residents of East Palestine. Toxic train disaster, Ohio residents speak out, starts at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight, only on CNN. Coming up, revelations from the spokesperson, the foreperson rather, of the Fulton County Grand Jury that investigated Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election.
19: I'm not the judge. I'm not the lawyers. But I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens.
1: So what might happen after the panel's recommendation to charge multiple individuals in the case? Stay with us. Turning now to yet another investigation into Donald Trump's actions. It's no longer a matter of if Fulton County prosecutors will pursue indictments in their investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. The question now is how many indictments? Prosecutors are still debating that number. But if you ask the special grand jury forewoman Emily Kors, she says it could be more than a dozen. As CNN Sarah Murray reports, Kors is freely spilling details from the months-long investigation.
20: Atlanta area prosecutors debating how many people should face charges in the probe into efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to upend the 2020 election in Georgia, sources tell CNN.
14: Decisions are imminent.
20: A special grand jury, which can't issue indictments, handed prosecutors multiple criminal referrals. It's not a short list. The special grand jury's foreperson, Emily (laughs) Coors, revealed how extensive the list may be.
13: More than a dozen, though, I think I'd heard you say in another interview.
20: I believe so. That's probably a good assumption prosecutors are looking at each person referred, weighing whether there's enough evidence to bring charges that will hold up in court, and debating whether to bring a narrow case or a more sprawling one, sources say. In a series of media interviews underwater. about the closed-door grand seven, jury five, proceedings, Coors revealed they heard from witnesses who haven't previously uh-huh. been reported. Be former White news, House Chief of Staff down, Mark down, Meadows.
19: Down, Mr. Meadows didn't share very much at all.
20: And Mark Short, former Chief of Staff to Vice President yeah, Mike Pence. Uh, She stopped short of confirming whether the former president was on the list of recommended indictments.
19: I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you.
20: Pointing out that Donald Trump was a frequent name before the panel. We definitely
19: heard a lot about former President Trump and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. I'm positive I have heard the president on the phone more than once.
20: Among the calls, the one that set off this probe when Trump called the Georgia Secretary of State
9: in January 2021. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
20: And Trump made this call to Francis Watson, a former investigator in the Secretary of State's office.
9: So these the people of Georgia are so angry at what happened to I me. Mean, they know I won, won by hundreds of thousands of votes. It wasn't close. Hopefully, uh, I, you know, I will... When, when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised.
20: As prosecutors continue their work, the four-person hopes to see the Fulton County District Attorney take some action from the grand jury's months of investigating.
19: I will be sad if nothing happens. Like, that's, that's about my only request there is, is for something to happen.
20: Now, the district attorney's office did not have a heads up that the four person was going to go public, although she is allowed to speak about the grand jury, although not the deliberations. And ultimately, it's not up to the DA's office to be responsible for authorizing her to speak or not. Prosecutors in the DA's office, meantime, keeping their heads down, still continuing on with their investigation. That includes digging into what we saw the House January 6th committee release, its report and its transcripts. All of that became public after the special grand jury completed its investigative work, Jake.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss. Um, it's rather unusual to have a grand jury four person uh, to come out and talk about this stuff. There's a difference between a, a jury, and sometimes after a big case, jurors will come forward to explain why they ruled. This is a grand jury which It's it's not a conclusion. It's just a prosecutorial tool. Right.
21: And it's governed by entirely separate set of rules and laws. And so we're we're not expecting to hear so much detail at this stage in the process. But because the specifications of this investigation are different from a jury, uh, we hear all sorts of details from. From the the, the, foreman, the foreman
1: as is, as is said about grand juries that a good prosecutor, good prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Mm. it's not necessarily a suggestion that there will be a guilty verdict ultimately, sure it's not that difficult to get a grand jury to indict, um, and yet you have this uh, grand jury for person. Hitting the talk show circuit.
17: Yeah, basically. And that's what makes this such a facepalm is that, you know, she says in her, her interview that, you know, she thinks it's really important that powerful people are held to account. But she's setting up a circumstance, while it may be technically legal, that could actually undermine any future prosecutions. And let's not be cute about this. What's potentially we're talking about is an indictment of a former president of the United States. That's a matter of enormous gravity, and you don't want to see people sort of like dancing their way around jury deliberations just to get face time.
1: It is interesting, and, and Margaret Trump wasted no time in, in talking, taking the truth social, mm-hmm. his, um, his quote unquote, or well, whatever it's you know yeah. whatever it is. It's um air quotes around his, and quote uh, are Yeah, well, because he uses it to lie quite a bit. <laughs> but Correct. in this case, this is his just legitimate opinion. He slammed the jury for one, and he called this an illegal kangaroo court. That's not true. It is a legal court. Um, but I mean. I wouldn't expect anyone to do, do, do any differently than what Donald Trump did against this. Uh, g- given that what the grand jury foreperson is doing,
21: I mean, what they ought to. This, this is going to be a teachable moment. This is a learning moment. This is a process about a mom. How <laughs> <civil> society, <laughs> a right? but like, this is a process about how civil society and a representative democracy yeah. self-governs. I mean, these are normal people. I right. mean, there's that that fabulous quote from William F. Buckley Jr. that says he'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston phone book than by the faculty at Harvard University. I mean, the, the idea that there is some genuine wisdom in just normal people out there getting together and deliberating I, the facts. Why are you willing? your Because
17: there's nothing that's wise very, about nice. what we're watching but right it's very, It's
1: very nice what she's saying. But she it says, is, totally it is this very is very nice. governance of the people, is what it she's saying. It is governance saying. Saying. of the people. You're making but me optimistic about our republic here. I,
17: and And that's a good they thing. They may
21: come down with a recommendation of several indictments after having deliberated for eight months and, and given and up their and, lives and their jobs and their ordinary And
17: and God bless them for their civic service. Yeah, John,
1: I'm on her side
17: now. There you go. And I appreciate that she's making you more earnest. But here's the real deal. She's making it more difficult for the process to move forward by taking this sort of victory lap media tour right now. She's going to make it more difficult for prosecutors should they choose to indict. So it's one thing for jurors to talk after a decision is made. At this point, she's actually making it more difficult. Because they
1: haven't actually come forward and Perfect. indicted anybody. And let me ask you, Margaret, because there's a different prosecution. There's, I can't even really keep track. Right. Right. There's a different—the special counsel investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, not just in Georgia but nationwide, mm-hmm. has just subpoenaed Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Maggie Haberman uh, broke it for The Times and came on the show to talk about it. And, you know, they're not just family. They're former White House senior staffers.
21: Yeah, and they will see—are they, they going to testify? Will they, will they, will they do I mean. There's plenty of people who are fighting testimonies, Pence included. Um, There are so many legal processes. I think it's important that we give them their space to to breathe out. But we also need to let that, that pillar of our democracy run its course. And the gears of justice grind slowly, but they're doing their work. And I think we just sit back and look And
17: and not so slowly anymore. Notably, they did testify to the January 6th committee, unlike a lot of aides who sort of, you know, pled the fifth endlessly. Um, And and, and they have – this is a more serious subpoena. Um, It has legal weight. Mm -hmm. And presumably, they have even more inside information. Interesting.
1: Let's talk about somebody who might, in fact, challenge Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. There are a few of them out there. Um, But uh, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is out there this week holding campaign-style rallies in three states, uh, kicking off a national book tour with the release of his memoir next week. Um, do you see this as essentially a soft launch for his presidential campaign?
21: It, it feels a lot that way. I mean, what do you check? What do you do when you're running for president? Uh, start to get your organizational fundraising capacity in order, write a book, right. and uh, finish your legislative session so you can announce afterwards. Check, check, check. Right. He's done all three of these. I mean, so it does have, have the feel of it, and and we know he is... Competitive with the former president in the polls, so it, yeah. it has all the telltale signs of of a soft launch.
1: And I have to say, I mean, if you go speaking of Truth Social, mm. if you happen to go there, which I did the other day, uh, and go onto Donald Trump's account, it's like every other post, Truth Social post, whatever they're called, truths. Uh, every other one is attacking Desantis, like literally every other one. Uh, here's just one of them: "Quote Florida was doing great long before Ron." Des, does you say Desan- yeah, Sanctus, he says, because it's Sanctimonious, he's saying. Sanctus got there. People are fleeing from New York to Florida because of high taxes, out of control crime, not because of Governor Sanctimonious. Rick Scott did great. And even Charlie Crist had good numbers, Sunshine and Ocean, very alluring. So he's actually literally praising Democrat yeah. Charlie Crist, who lost to DeSantis
17: Forty, sixty? Yeah,
1: in the last gubernatorial. I mean, yeah,
17: I know. I mean, first of all, th- that's probably the worst Florida Tourism Board announcement you could possibly <laughs> have. But but beyond that, look, I mean, you know, he's obsessed with Ron DeSantis. He is because he's insecure about DeSantis taking uh, his nomination away from him, and so he's acting like a petulant child and lashing out on Truth Social. And it's a sign of DeSantis's relative strength that he can sort of play play above it all, uh, while while Trump is constantly lashing out, looking for attention. It, I mean, his strategy has been to not
1: engage mm-hmm. and just take it to Democrats, take it to the media, take it to yeah. teachers, take it to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But he, he has not criticized Donald Trump.
21: And what's interesting is that he can afford not to right now, and he isn't being pounded out of the public arena. I do think the fact that these are truths, not tweets, yeah. makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. If Donald Trump were still on Twitter, that He is. Platform, he's, a, he's been allowed back. He, he has been allowed back, but he is not using that platform. And right. the. Um, The effect of that platform was far more, frankly, efficacious for him than, frankly, needing you to go to a site to then tell people what he said. Everybody was covering it before. And I think on some level that has contained Donald Trump's damage and radius of damage. I
6: don't
17: disagree, but is it also possible that it's just kind of an old act? Yeah, it's getting old, which is what he can feel himself losing the audience, people looking to Ron DeSantis. I think the question is whether DeSantis's silence is a matter of strength or whether it's part of a larger pattern we see from other would-be Republicans um, where, where they dance around Donald Trump for mm-hmm. fear of offending. It's that fear of the base and fear of Trump that leads them to excusing the inexcusable. And until the Republican Party finds its spine uh, they're, they're, you know, they're going to remain in trouble. So they're going to have to be willing to call it out directly.
21: The face-off will happen eventually. I mean, eventually DeSantis and Donald Trump will be on the same stage. Donald Trump will be able to say all these things to his face and the crowd will respond. And so it, it's a virtual crowd right now. The truth people are for Trump. The other people are for DeSantis. Where the base ends up, we're not going to be able to see it until they're actually, we have those moments. In the we just debate.
17: can't say truth people. just doesn't
21: work to say
1: and and
17: then we'll see whether Ron DeSantis has a glass job
1: so the Washington Post (laughs) writes about what's beyond these repeated attacks from Trump is people they say people close to Trump said he wants to make DeSantis think about it whether he wants to get into the race Trump advisors say he wants to make it painful for DeSantis to enter the race I have to say none of this stuff is really all that painful hitting them from the left on social security and medicare uh, it did, Ron DeSanctimonious is not. I mean, it's not. It's not that. It's not as good as you know, Lion Ted Cruz or whatever.
17: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. The, the first album was much better than the seventh. But yeah, this is this is a very tired bully thug routine, and, and we'll see if it's.
21: It I. I just. I think it's too early for us to know whether it's going to get traction or not. I think Donald Trump may get his mojo back. He may get the crowds back. Absolutely. they All may come back, mm-hmm. and actually, DeSanctimonious becomes the roar laugh line of the of the rally. One never knows. How and- many syllables? You know what?
17: <laughs> no, but she's easy right. For you I to say,
21: don't, absolutely. Easy for you to say. With Donald I,
1: Trump, one never knows. Absolutely. One never knows. Uh, Margaret and John, great to see both of you. you appreciate it. We'll see you next week in Thank D.C. Care. Thanks to all. The Supreme Court hearing the second of two cases that could change the internet, and who is really responsible for what people post? Stay with us. In our tech lead for the second day in a row, the U.S. Supreme Court justices heard arguments in a big tech case that could reshape the internet. The issue this time, whether Twitter or other social media companies can be sued for aiding and abetting a specific act of international terrorism. This case involves the family of a man who was tragically killed in a 2017 ISIS attack in Istanbul. Their argument is that Twitter knowingly helped ISIS by allowing the terrorist group's content to persist on its platform. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher are here to explain what's at stake. Jessica, first, tell us what both sides argued in court today.
13: Well, Jake, we heard a lot of technical arguments in this case, so it was a lot more subdued than we heard yesterday. But overall, the two sides here, they argued really over the meaning of this anti-terrorism statute that the case is based on. Namely, you know, whether merely by allowing terrorist organizations to post content on Twitter, whether Twitter should be found to have knowingly and substantially provided support for the terrorist organization. So obviously, Twitter argued that just allowing users to post does not mean that they knowingly support terrorist activities, On the flip side, the attorney for the victim's family, he really made this very far-reaching argument that Twitter could potentially be held responsible for every terrorist attack or even a mention was made on its platform. So obviously, Jake, that argument seemed to go a bit too far for some of these justices.
1: So read read the tea leaves even further if you could. Do you think the justices signaled about how they potentially might rule?
13: Yeah, there's some thought on this because the justices are very aware of how much upheaval a ruling in the victim's favor could bring in this case, obviously, since it would really change the way the Internet is run. So they did tread carefully. They pushed back extensively on the attorney here who argued that social media companies are are liable under this anti-terrorism act. Yesterday, of course, we saw them expressing this skepticism that Section 230's protection should be eroded. So as for tea leaves, Jake, you know, many court watchers are looking at both of these cases together. And it's possible here that if the justices rule on today's case that Twitter can't be held responsible under this anti-terrorism act, if they found that way, they wouldn't even have to address the limits of Section 230 in the case we heard yesterday. And that might be the way to kind of skirt the issue, at least for now.
1: Sarah, yesterday, Supreme Court justices heard arguments for that other Internet speech case involving Google. W- tell us what the similarities are, you think.
22: So both of them take into account whether or not tech platforms should be liable for the content that everyday users post. But the key difference is with the Google case yesterday, it was whether or not Google should be immune. And the, today, what they're talking about with Twitter is whether Twitter should be held accountable For a different type of thing around anti-terrorism. I think what both of them though signify is whether or not big tech platforms that have let users post anything they've wanted for the past 30 years should be held accountable for anything that they post, including whether that is terrorist account. And I think what you're signaling to Jessica's point from the court is that it doesn't seem like this is something that they're likely to take up. I think that they understand that if they were to make such a ruling, it would have huge ripple effect on the internet. It's more likely this gets punted if it even does to Congress.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does seem more like a legislative action. And how could, theoretically, though, either of these cases change the way we use the Internet uh, if they were to surprise us with their rulings?
22: Well, let's say you've took that immunity away from tech platforms, meaning that they were held accountable for everything that any user would post. I mean, it would completely shut down the Internet as we know it. No more comment sections. You probably couldn't just post anything as an everyday user without really authenticating your identity. And it's not just big tech, Jake. Think about any commenting platform, Yelp, TripAdvisor, all of that stuff, those businesses would be completely underwater.
1: All right. Sarah Fisher, Jessica Schneider, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. In our worldly, violent and deadly clashes erupted in the occupied West Bank after an Israeli military raid. Israeli officials say the raid was focused on a house harboring terrorists who are planning attacks in the, quote, immediate future. The raid happened in the middle of the day near a busy market in Nablus. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says more than 100 Palestinians were injured and 11 were killed, six of whom have been claimed by Palestinian militant groups, including Hamas. The head of the local Red Crescent calls what happened today a massacre. A spokesman for the Israeli military conceded that the raid did get, quote, very messy. Coming up, the border propo- proposal from the Biden administration that is angering both Republicans and Democrats. Stay with us. In our national lead, the Biden administration is proposing a new border restriction that would prevent most migrants from applying for asylum in the United States. This rule is being linked to a Trump era policy known as Title 42 that sought to dramatically curtail who was eligible for asylum. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live for us now from the White House. And Priscilla, what are the similarities between the Trump era policy and Biden's new proposal?
11: Well, former President Donald Trump had tried to curtail asylum generally, including by barring migrants who crossed other countries to get to the U.S.-Mexico border from claiming asylum. That has echoes to what the Biden administration is proposing now by largely barring again those migrants who have transited through multiple countries and did not seek refuge there from claiming asylum here in the U.S. Now, administration officials reject this comparison. They say that this is not a ban on asylum in the way that it was under the Trump administration, that there are exceptions, and that they are expanding legal pathways to the United States. But look, this is the most restrictive policy that the Biden administration has released thus far in their patchwork of policies to try to manage the U.S.-Mexico border. And the key difference here is that U.S. law permits migrants who arrive on U.S. soil, regardless of how they arrive, to request asylum. This adds additional layers as to whether or not they would be eligible by instead doing what's called the presumption of ineligibility if they transited through other countries. Now an administration official told reporters that this was not our first preference or even our second. So they are conceding that this is not a measure that they necessarily would want to take either but it's the only measure among others that they see fit to try to manage the flow amid mass migration in the Western Hemisphere. Jake
1: hey, I have to ask I mean how are democratic lawmakers responding to this they were they were so critical of Trump era policies.
11: The resounding message is that they are, quote, deeply disappointed. That is what Democratic lawmakers have been saying, uh, including immigrant advocates who say this is very reminiscent of the Trump era. We should note, Jake, though, that this is a rule that wouldn't take effect until May. There's still a public comment period it needs to go through. And the reason for that is that that COVID era border restriction, known as Title 42 that we talked to, is expected to expire in May. So all of this is the administration bracing for that time.
1: All right, Priscilla Alvarez at the White House Forest, Thank you so much. Also internationally, a cross-country winter storm likely to last until at least Friday. Gusty winds, ice, heavy snow, creating whiteout conditions, particularly in the upper Midwest. Meteorologist Jennifer Gregg is in the CNN Weather Center tracking the storm. Jennifer, how bad is this going to get?
4: This is going to be really bad, especially for places in the Midwest. You're talking about one of the top snowiest storms across places like Minneapolis, where we have blizzard warnings in effect across portions of western Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota. Look at this map. You see all the watches and warnings. It's hard to find a place that's going to be untouched by this storm. We are going to see huge impacts. These areas shaded in red and then in purple across the Sierra. We're going to see a lot of mountain passes closed, but we could see very hazardous travel conditions. Power outages will be expected as well. Here's the radar, and you can see the snow all the way across the northern tier of the country. Also, ice is going to be a huge concern. We could see half an inch to three quarters of an inch of ice in some places that's going to make travel impossible. So, throughout the overnight hours tonight, especially, and then starting to wind down by tomorrow. So, tonight's really where we're going to see the bulk of it continuing to snow across Minneapolis. This is 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, and then really winding down by the time we get into midday tomorrow uh, but this storm could have far-reaching impacts especially talking about the slick roads the bridges where we could see A quarter of an inch to half an inch of ice. These areas shaded in purple. That's through Detroit. Madison could see a lot of trouble with that ice as well. Additional snowfall yet to come across places in the Midwest. We could see an additional 8 to 12 inches of snow. And that's for portions of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan. uh, And that's on top of what has already fallen. This is also going to stretch into New England as well, Jake, where we could see anywhere to a foot to a foot and a half of snow across interior sections of New England.
1: All right, Jennifer Gray in the CNN Weather Center. Thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Reminder, please join me tonight for a live CNN town hall where the residents of East Palestine will get to ask their questions of the CEO of Norfolk Southern, Alan Shaw, of the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, and the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Regan. Toxic train disaster. Ohio residents speak out. Starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, and it will only air on CNN. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I will see you at 9 p.m. Eastern.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.